I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Over the last five weeks, our world has been descending further and further into the chaos of fear, sickness, death, despair. At the same time, over the last five weeks, Christ's church has been remembering Jesus's inexorable journey, a journey that begins in the wilderness of temptation, in which Jesus makes it clear that he is on a mission to make human life meaningful and full and satisfying again by saying yes to God. And then over the course of the next four weeks, we've had readings that show portions of what Jesus' journey into Jerusalem to die for our sins and to rise will bring. To Nicodemus, he shows the way to know truth. To the woman at the well, he shows how to find love in all the right places and not all the wrong places. Last week, he saw him deal with a man born blind to show him how he could really see. And this week, with Lazarus, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, friends he loves, he shows that he is not just the way to life, but he is the life the resurrection, and the life. I'd like to think about two aspects of this story uh, with us today. First is, uh, I'd like the, 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 the broad sense of the story, I'd like the broad sense of the story to stand simply in the reading of it, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And I'd like to ponder the significance of that for a few moments, and then I'd like to look at one detail in the story. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. This has been a time for all of us to ponder anew the point, the purpose, the value, the fragility of life itself. Francis Collins is the head of the NIH, the National Institute of Health. And he is the boss of Anthony Fauci, who is the world's leading expert on communicable diseases. Recently, Collins was interviewed in the Atlantic magazine, and the conversation turned to Collins's faith. And Collins talked about how he had grown up in a house where he was not Um, He was not taught to believe in God. In fact, his father encouraged him to go to an Episcopal church and learn the music but ignore everything else. And then by the time Collins was a medical student, he had decided that God was unnecessary in a world that we learned about the truth of from science. God was an unnecessary hypothesis in the face of scientific truth. But he didn't have an answer to death. And he talks about how he would sit with terminal patients in North Carolina hospitals. And what he couldn't understand was the people of faith 
who had joy, a sense of hope, a sense of equilibrium. And it began to make him rethink whether he really had all the answers. And he finally wound up talking to a Methodist minister who introduced him to the writings of C.S. Lewis and eventually found himself bowing the knee before Jesus Christ and has been serving Christ in his, with his science ever since. I want to read a few lines from the very first Easter sermon that we have a record of. It's from Melita of Smyrna, which is modern-day Izmir, on the west coast of uh, modern-day Turkey. Smyrna was one of the letters addressed in the book of Revelation, and the church was warned about persecutions that were going to come. And then, indeed, in 155 AD, Marcus Aurelius had uh, their bishop martyred, uh, Polycarp. And now 40 years later, with still an unbelieving Roman emperor, Septimus Severus, and the church still having to, to live under the fear of continued persecution, their bishop gets up on Sunday morning and says these words. The Lord clothed himself with humanity and with suffering on behalf of the suffering and bound on behalf of the constrained and judged on behalf of the convicted and buried on behalf of the one entombed, rose from the dead and cried aloud, who takes issue with me? Let him stand before me. I set free the condemned. I gave life to the dead. I raise up the entombed. Who will contradict me? It is I, says the Christ. I am he who destroys death and triumphs over the enemy and crushes Hades and binds the strong man and bears up humanity to the heavenly heights. It is I, says the Christ. In the days ahead, whatever you face, whether it's death itself, or whether it's having to sacrifice some freedom, whether it's trying to go to bed at, the, at night, praying, Lord, keep my friends safe. May I wake up healthy. May you know, may you know Jesus as your life and your resurrection. Let me make one observation about one detail in the story as well. Jesus wept. Now, the overall theme that Jesus is the resurrection and the life keeps the Bible story from being a tragedy that's depressing and hopeless. But this little detail, Jesus wept, keeps the story from being a fantasy that's triumphalistic and wackadoodle. What I want you to notice is what it is that prompts Jesus' tears. Listen to the text. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, 
and the Jews who came with her also weeping. When he saw their tears, deep emotions and his will set in. And then the shortest verse in the whole Bible, the King James translates it better, two words, Jesus wept. Jesus wept as far back as the Garden of Eden. God cannot help but respond to the horrors that Adam and and Eve had unleashed on themselves and all the rest of us. Sickness, famine, estrangement, death, without responding with a promise to heal and to make it all right again, to fix it. This God cannot listen to the cries of his people enslaved in Egypt without responding with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And this God cannot see his people lying dead, dry bones, without promising, I will come and I will breathe life in once again. And here, God in flesh, God in flesh come to bring the healing promise to Adam and Eve. God in flesh come with his own mighty hand and outstretched arm. God in flesh come to breathe life-giving words. Cannot help but respond to the wailing of family and friends without crying. Today, may you know that he still meets people in their tears and matches and mixes his with theirs. He comes alongside you, sees what you see, feels what you feel. When you wish that you could be at the bedside of someone who is suffering or even dying. When he, when he sees you groaning, wishing that you could go to, that you should go, that you could go to the assisted living home where your, your mom or your grandfather lives to watch TV or play bingo with them. When he sees you wanting, aching to do something, but you're told to stay at home. He sees you longing because you have to resist for now. Every instinct that you have as a child of Christ to come to be with his people, to exchange the kiss of peace, to share a common cup and a common loaf, to go and visit the lonely and the easily forgotten. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, there's a time to embrace and a time to to refrain from embracing. And there's a time to mourn and there's a time to rejoice. Know this, the time for mourning will pass and the time for joy will come again. In the meantime, know that this God, 
this God in the flesh God, this God and only this God, who tears up at the sadness of his friends, stands alongside you, his arm around you, holding you shoulder to shoulder with him and weeps with and for you. He's done this sort of thing for 2,000 years through persecutions, famines, wars, pestilences, and plagues, periods of apathy and periods of revival. He will do it for 2,000 more years if that's what it takes to get you and me and all his children home. And he will do it standing at your side, seeing what you see, sighing as you sigh, shuddering as you shudder, matching you tear for tear. Because even now, it's just like it was when people recognized that as Jesus wept on his way to the tomb of his friend, see how he loved him. Jesus loved Lazarus back then, and Jesus loves you right now. May you be blessed this day. Amen.